0: Welcome to the Injured to Elite podcast with your host, Dr. David Meyer, sports physical therapist and mental performance coach. Dr. Dave is a former Major League Baseball Rehab coordinator and has now integrated the mental side into physical rehabilitation. This podcast shares the many stories and strategies of those who have taken themselves from injured to elite. Head over to www.injuredtoelite.com to learn more about David and his recently published book, Injured to Elite. Everybody, Dave, back here with episode number sixty-one of the Injured Toolie Podcast. I'm really excited to bring this episode to all of you for so many different reasons. Let me start this out by explaining why. One of the main influences behind me starting a podcast was the Rich Roll podcast. It was really the first podcast that I really found myself listening to for hours upon hours. I heard David Goggins come on as a guest, and Todd Herman, Edward Norton. The list goes on and on. And listening to Rich interview his guests and go deep with them was something I thought was very important. Rich Roll interviewed a reoccurring guest that was recently re-interviewed on the Rich Roll Podcast is Dr. Judd Brewer. And in this episode, you are going to hear yours truly interview Dr. Judd Brewer, psychiatrist, neuroscientist, PhD MD, little introduction about Dr. Brewer. He's a New York Times bestselling author and thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of self-mastery, having combined over 20 years of experience with mindfulness training with his scientific research therein. He's the director of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center, where he also serves as an associate professor. He's the executive medical director at Sharecare Inc. and a research affiliate at MIT. Dr. Judd has developed and tested novel mindfulness programs for habit change Including both in person and app based treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. His new book is called Unwinding Anxiety New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind, which I've already read. And it was brought to my attention through the Ritual podcast. And after I heard him speak about these really intriguing topics regarding habit loops and how to break them, I knew that I needed to interview him because I think. And I believe that chronic pain is a habit loop and can become a habit loop. There are so many different other habit loops that can occur after injury or just on our journeys as athletes trying to improve our performance. So there were a lot of emotions going into this episode. I was very excited to interview Dr. Judd. I was quite nervous going into the interview, being that Dr. Brewer has been interviewed by some pretty well-established people in the media industry, such as Anderson Cooper on CNN, but after reading the book and learning about his work and the research behind his work, like I said, he's a PhD MD. He's not just applying these things clinically and seeing if they work. He's also studying them in his lab at Brown university and he's proving that they work. Our last episode was titled Mindfulness 101. So this is a really important follow-up episode where you're now going to hear the research behind mindfulness and a very specific way of applying mindfulness into your life, especially as it pertains to breaking bad habits or habits that you want to change or how you relate to your physical experience. could be pain. That's something that I asked Dr. Brewer about in this episode. One of the things that Dr. Brewer actually talks a lot about in his book is self-love and kindness and how we can apply that, especially when we fall into the habit loop of self-judgment. I'm going to spare you too many of the details, but I definitely went down that path recording this episode after realizing that my high quality microphone, my Heil PR40, was not actually engaging with the Skype call. This is frustrating and a very nice segue for me to beat myself up. It's not the first time I'm apologizing for the quality, but I want to use this as a case example. Don't ever let beating yourself up get in the way of the bigger picture. We're not going to let that happen with this episode because there's so much for you to learn. This is going to change the game for you no matter what angle you're listening to this podcast with. It's going to help you be better and help you live the life you want to live with the habits you want to have, whether it's your workout habits, your rehab habits, your self-love and your self-talk habits, even as a clinician and a professional working with your clients, athletes, and patients, whatever it is, this is an episode for all humans that are interested in being any level of better. I hope you enjoy this one. So here's episode number 61 with Dr. Judd Brewer. Enjoy. Dr. Brewer, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing with all of us, your work that you've done on mindfulness as a psychiatrist and also the Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center. I know Kabat-Zinn was from the Northeast
1: as well, right? Did he do some of his work not too far? He started his work at the UMass Medical Center or UMass Medical School about uh, about an hour north of Providence, yes.
0: So were you kind of, before your training, Is that did that have an influence on you? an early influence?
1: The earliest influences on me were, I actually started meditating my first day of medical school back in the 90s. I hadn't heard of Kabat-Zinn until uh, right before I started medical school. I started reading one of his books and started meditating. But I was, I was at Wash U in St. Louis and had joined a local meditation community and just started learning meditation myself through a more Southeast Asian uh, influence uh, through uh, Theravada Buddhism. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's really where I got my start was looking, you know, looking inwardly uh, through meditation practices through that Buddhist tradition.
0: A lot of listeners that are first year physical therapy students, the doctoral physical therapy program has gotten really out of control to be honest and it's very competitive now people think they have the best lifestyle going into pt i burnt out as a physical therapist i truly believe my first 3 years as a pt i graduated from NYU in 2012 i worked uh in new york and then i did a residency at hss in new york and then went got the dream job with the cardinals and i think i burnt out probably my first year with the cardinals mm-hmm and it's an epidemic. I know you've done some of your early research with applying your model was with physicians and
1: medical students. Is that right? The yes, we did a study specifically with physicians with anxiety. And one of the you know, it's it's like you're talking about whether it's PT, whether it's all healthcare providers, you know, I don't know about you, but in medical school, I learned this, um, this adage of of, uh, armor up, you know, where it's like, we've got, got it we can't show any weakness we you know we can't show any fatigue because any moment we could be spending that moment saving the lives of our patients you know it is it, it was pretty yeah. melodramatic so so the idea here is if we're not you know if we're not alive you know in terms of being physically and mentally there to help our patients how can you know how can we possibly be helpful and so you know, I started looking at this connection between anxiety and burnout, for example, in physicians. Physicians are no—I know this because I, you know, we we tend to be a group that's that's tough to work with. <laughs> you know? A little
0: bit, a little bit, yeah.
1: Little bit. <laughs> you you know exactly what I'm talking about, and so you know, tend not to take advice. To you know, I'm not—I don't want to overgeneralize. There are lots of great physicians out there, but let's just say don't spend a lot of time taking care of ourselves. So we did a study first looking at the correlations between anxiety and burnout, because the hypothesis was that people with anxiety are more like, you know, it's it's like revving your engine in neutral. You know, it's like you're burning all this gas and you're not going anywhere. And I think that's kind of the way I think of anxiety is, is it's really revving the engine and, and not getting us anywhere. So we, we had developed this unwinding anxiety app to help people with anxiety. We can, we can talk more about why I did that later. But the long story short was, you know, the medications that, that we prescribe as physicians aren't particularly great. Uh, the, you know, the number needed to treat, meaning how many patients you need to give a medication to before one person benefits, it's 5.2. So I was playing the medication lottery. With helping my patients, didn't know which one of the five that I, you know, the next five I prescribed to was going to benefit. And then what, what was I going to do with the other 80%? So we developed this unwinding anxiety program and first um, tested it in anxious physicians. So we found first at baseline, we looked at the correlation between anxiety and burnout. We got a, found very strong correlations, you know, like 0.7 and maybe even higher. It's, uh, so strong correlations between anxiety and burnout, especially particular aspects like uh, callousness. You know, it's really important, as you know, <laughs> to, to have good rapport with our patients. Otherwise, you, everything from buy-in to therapeutic relationship to their healing is dependent on that. So if we're callous toward our patients, it's gonna be really challenging to help them in the best way that we can and help them heal as quickly as possible or help them maintain their optimal fitness. So high correlation there. Uh, long story short, in we got a, what was it? 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores in these physicians with anxiety. that That blew me away. I didn't think it would be that strong of an effect. And then we also threw in some questionnaires related to burnout because we wanted to see if the two were, you know, if the, because the two were correlated, could we see a reduction in burnout without even mentioning the term burnout in the program? And quick question. Yeah. We're using the Maslach inventory to to track it. We were. Okay. Yeah. The Maslach burnout inventory. And we looked at two particular subcategories there. One was callousness, like I mentioned, and also emotional exhaustion. And we found significant reductions in both. Yet, interestingly, there was a greater reduction. I think it was a 50% reduction in callousness because that callousness is something that we can work with it directly, individually, right? Callousness do- isn't an institutional issue. It's it's a personal issue if we're callous towards somebody. Yet emotional exhaustion probably has more of an interplay and has a lot to do with institutional issues, you know, or our RV units, you know, like... um Yeah. How much are we billing? How much, how many patients are returning through our clinics? Units. Yeah. So there we saw a less of a reduction, though still significant, which also highlights, you know, an app's not going to fix everything, but it can help somebody work with their mind. And in the place where their mind's really contributing the most, we can see the biggest reductions, which is why we saw bigger reductions in anxiety and callousness as compared to emotional exhaustion.
0: This was a question I wanted to ask you, like, what was really the, the the Pareto's, you know, 80, 20, like really what pounded into these these physicians and and healthcare providers
1: that change with your work? Like, what was it? Yeah. So in this study, we were just looking for a signal. Uh, but that signal, 57%, will take it. You know, that was a strong enough signal for us to apply for larger grant funding from the NIH and to do a randomized control trial. And my, you, you know, this also goes back to something that I'd really been struggling with, which was, you know, what was I missing in medical school around anxiety? Or what, what did I sleep through in, in residency training that I missed? <laughs> because i really felt like we weren't getting at the core you know behavioral and psychological mechanism of anxiety and it was actually a clue that i got from somebody we had this other app called eat right now that helps people with mm-hmm. emotional and stress eating and somebody using that program said to me you know i'm i'm realizing that anxiety triggers my stress eating can you make a program for anxiety and that put a bug in my ear because I was thinking, well, I prescribe medications, but that put a bug in my ear to go back and look at the literature. And it turns out there's literature from the 1980s showing that, suggesting that anxiety could be driven like any other habit. And that's where all the light bulbs went off in my head because my lab studies habit changed. And I was like, oh, I never thought about anxiety as a habit or it could be driven like a habit. So that actually is what prompted us to develop this Unwinding Anxiety Program. So long answer to your short question, you know, we approach things through a habit lens. Can we help people understand how their minds work so that they can work with their minds and approach anxiety not through a willpower or a grit or a medication uh, approach, but th- really through uh, tapping into the power of their own brains through r- reinforcement. All right, yeah.
0: I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge the the well-researched position here because little Dave, I I've only been practicing as a PT for ten years, but this is where I am very curious. I've heard brilliant people such as yourself talk about some amazing work. I, I was listening to Dr. Huberman because I was just after hearing your episode, I'm like. Let me see who else, Rich, you know, you are on the Rich Roll podcast talking about Unwinding Anxiety, your book that you just wrote. And the thing that like, punched me in the face that I heard from other authors, Phil Stutz, Barry Michaels who wrote the book, The Tools, is this concept of volitional abilities with our mental state or emotional state, for lack of a better way of saying it, willpower, uh, self-control, as you, you, I know you use that term. With mindfulness, I think it's so interesting. My own mentor is a sports psychologist, he talks about his research. If you want to tap into the primitive brain, you, you better not try and think it out. Yeah. So, But here's the thing. With the chicken or the egg, is there some level of conscious thinking or even prefrontal cortex activity with even applying awareness or mindfulness? Or is it simply... Just happen to your senses.
1: Is there a dance going on there? Yeah, it's a really good question. So there are there are parts of the brain, parts of the prefrontal cortex uh, that are involved in. Well, actually, it's I don't. I'm not even sure it's officially prefrontal cortex. So there's like a an executive network that, um, and there's a kind of a dorsal attention system, and the dorsal attention system's less prefrontal cortically mediated the prefrontal cortex is most well known for things like working memory you know the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex for example working memory holding things in mind you know it's like the grocery list it's you know what what the task is and you know you're trying to keep the the elements of that task in mind there's a there's a part of the brain the the dorsal anterior cingulate which is not really prefrontal cortex either That is involved in um, this. It gets activated with these tasks like the Stroop task, for example, where you you're supposed you're shown a uh, a word that's a specific color, and you're supposed to say what the color is instead of reading the word. And our brains uh, automatically read the word. And so there's this um, when we have this error that says, "Oh, I was supposed to read the word," you know, when when we're kind of I'm not describing it perfectly but when there's that mismatch there that Got it. that part of the brain gets activated as well saying oh you know you you you, you didn't do the right thing for example like an audit
0: system yeah. like a little
1: bit of an auditing system yeah Yeah. And so, and that system's been shown to be involved, you know, when it's activated, it's been correlated with improvements in, in cognitive task function, for example. So I, and thinking through this, I'm not sure, I think awareness is at a deeper level than the prefrontal cortex. Uh, As far as I can remember, maybe there's a piece that I'm missing. I I think of the dorsal, the prefrontal cortex, like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, uh, more in terms of, you know, the working memory, the cognitive control, those types of things. I think aware, I'm not sure what, if there is a particular brain region implicated in awareness, you know, because awareness is so fundamental to everything, right? Uh, You wouldn't want it to be localized. Alert and oriented times three, essentially you have awareness
0: going on so that your brain activity, so... I understand that the research struggle there, that that's interesting, but what, sorry to cut you off. I just think it's so interesting because then what happens, I think, I don't want to call anybody out, but the non-clinical people, the people that are not PhD psychiatrists or psychologists, they easily want to tell you to use a certain process. Maybe it's get your heart rate up. Maybe it's calm down, all these different things. But as I just saw you curiously think about my question, It's complex. And for me, I know at least I catch myself saying, all right, breathing through it and saying, Dave, bring some awareness. You're trying to fix this person you're working with. And you just started this session with them. And you're trying to you're taking this on. But then sometimes it doesn't happen. So I'm like incredibly intrigued by intrinsic motivation. And because me personally growing up, I grew up with a sick father. I was a shorter athlete. I have this chip on my shoulder. I was a twin surviving twin. I don't know if that has something to do with it, but I somehow am intrinsically motivated to do certain things. I'm not particularly very intelligent, but I got my doctorate. I worked for the Cardinals. I'm not the best manual therapist, but I'm in, I'm incredibly curious about how people behave. Somehow became a physical therapist instead of a psychologist, but I have this intrinsic motivation. And I ask myself, how do I give this? How do I help people tap into this? And I don't know. I was once talking to somebody about neurofeedback and I said, the trillion dollar question is how do we, how do we truly rewire the brain to be intrinsically motivated? Do you have any, uh, any, any, or can you be an oracle with that?
1: Yeah. Well, my lab just finished a study. We haven't published this yet, but we are actually looking at motivation. So we looked across 14 different mental states and had people rank them in terms of which was most rewarding, which was least rewarding. So that we could, because our brains are set up through this reward hierarchy. You know, we're going to do things that are more rewarding than other things. And that's what sets up motivation, you know, given choice between, (laughs) Chocolate cake and broccoli. You know, our our survival brain says cake every time. It's more motivated yeah. to eat the cake. So I think that right. is is actually set up in our brains in a in a, in a in a beautiful way, actually. And it's a matter of tapping into that. And in this study, one thing we also looked at with each of these mental states, we asked people to rate how open or how closed the state felt. So, for example, with anxiety, the anxiety tends to feel closed down, contracted. Right. We asked people so we could get the rankings, not just of how rewarding these states were, but also how open or closed they felt. And the reason we did that was that we wanted people to be able to tap into something that is tangible, that they could use as their own feedback instead of, you know, because we've been developing neurofeedback devices for years super expensive, still nothing, you know, there's a bunch of stuff out there that I wouldn't recommend using. I don't think the field is there yet. But so we said, well, can we actually get to the best feedback, which is our own body and being able to tap into, instead of using a sophisticated device, like an fMRI machine, can we give people some simple tool that they can they can zoom in on and calibrate quickly? And open and closed seems to be something that is a universal language. When we look hundreds of people, we don't even have to define it; they can all agree on whether certain mental states feel open or closed. So anxiety, for example, feels closed. Frustration feels closed. Like if you're trying to fix your patient, <laughs> I'm going to guess it's a little more closed down. Nobody told me, by the way, in school not to do that. Just putting that out there. Nobody ever said that to me, ever. Yeah, I think that is the dominant (laughs) paradigm. And so hopefully we can change that Um, when people see that that doesn't work. So when you look at curiosity, when you look at connection, when you look at kindness, they all feel open and they're more rewarding. So our brain already knows where to go, and you've already named it curiosity. And if we so you're asking, well, how do we how do we help people develop intrinsic motivation? It's about tapping into our own curiosity. And so if a, if a patient comes in and we're struggling with figuring out you know, what it is or helping them improve instead of going, oh, you know, oh, no, what am I? You know, let me try to fix this. We go. Oh, and we start exploring it, which opens us into growth mindset so that we can actually explore all the possibilities and we can learn. So that's, that's, beautiful. that's what I would say there is, you know, and I write a lot about this in, in my book, because I, I really believe that curiosity is a superpower. You know, you
0: convinced me on Dr. Doctor, uh, doctor, you convinced me on rituals podcast. I, Rich, Rich was the motivation for me to start a podcast. When I was thinking about the different channels, I knew digitally, I needed to do something in this world before COVID. And I heard your episode with him. And I hear you talking about awareness and curiosity. I'm like, this seems very practical and I, I listened to your i started your book unwinding anxiety which i saw that you published really recently in march i didn't realize that yeah just- i published my book yeah in october and i know this is your second this is your second book right mm-hmm. um i finished it i think in about a week i tr- i slowed myself down uh <laughs> because i know that you mentioned it. You li- i listened to you i was trying to be a decent patient but I was probably a little too quick Probably should have taken more of like a month, but it was unbelievable how you use the metaphor. So something I'm finding with ACT, I'm applying that a little more into the rehab world, the metaphors and language. That's another thing I'm fascinated with, how language, it convolutes things in our field. But at the same time, the language you use, I know is very tactful. I've heard your TED talk. I've listened to you speak a little bit and you are very artful and you're very skillful with the language you use in order to be able to connect these not-so-simple things that are going on in our brain to a common folk like me. And what you explained to me, what, what I heard was this second gear is such a—I don't want to give away the book, but the second year in terms of looking at a reward-based learning system is kind of the holy grail. My biggest question about that, I'm, I'm going to let people read the book because you need to read the book. Any Anybody and everybody, we have anxiety. This is, in my opinion, what this is the best out there. I've had, I've been on benzodiazepine. I've tried different things. I come from a nervous Jewish family. It, it, you know, this is really some serious stuff and how mindfulness is now being westernized, which I think is, I hate using that word, but whatever research to really support it. Um, but with this reward-based learning, my biggest question I have is, does it revert back or is it stick? Is it plastic?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So here, well, let's use it simply. The easiest example that I can think of is smoking. So when I have a patient that comes into my office and wants to quit smoking, the first thing I have them do is I have them smoke, not in my office because it's a smoking <laughs> But I have them go outside and I I have them smoke and I have them really carefully pay attention as they smoke. And what they realize, you know, is that cigarettes taste like crap. You know, cigarettes don't taste good. I've never had a patient come back to me and say, thank you, Dr. Brewer, for helping delicious (laughs) this cigarette is. I'm going (laughs) to savor it every day. You know, they're smoking to relieve a nicotine and a dopamine deficit and that un- mm-hmm. they're just getting back to baseline and they're going through the process of smoking something that's pretty crappy to do it. You know, so I'm so glad finally menthol cigarettes are being banned because that was one way to cover up the taste uh, mm-hmm. and it disproportionately targets, um, you know, African-Americans, for example. So, you know, yet another problem with cigarettes. So with cigarettes it never goes back nobody comes back and says you know i'm i'm now smoking more now that i'm paying attention i've also had people in my in our eat right now program accuse me jokingly of uh, they're like you ruined my love of junk food you know because they they start paying attention as they eat junk food and they realize it tastes like crap <laughs> you know yeah. i remember when i first i used to be addicted to eating gummy worms <laughs> and <laughs> You know, As a medical that.
0: student or what? Just always. What's that? Like that was, was that like your your snack, your cramming snack?
1: When I think you were, so. when you were student? Yeah. All right. Yeah. And somewhere, you know, I must have had a good experience with them or whatnot. And, you know, they, they drive more consumption. You know, what you it, just like the potato chip commercial, you can't eat just one, you know, because we've designed them this way. Uh, gummy worms right. are like, I mean... So, when I started eat, paying attention when I ate gummy worms, and then I would compare those to eating blueberries, uh, for me, blueberries are the pinnacle of perfection.
0: <laughs> not only if they're well ripe, if they're well ripe, they're delicious, but if
1: yes. it's off a little bit, it can be frustrating. For sure, for sure. So, when I compare eating gummy worms to blueberries, it's a no brainer. Like, gummy worms just taste like crap. So, I have not seen that revert. And I think that's because our brain has this. You know hierarchy that knows. You know blueberries are actually they. You know it's the perfect balance of sweetness. We haven't quite nailed that balance artificial yet. And most artificial food is driven for dopamine uh, draw. You know to get people firing dopamine rather than for nutrition, for example. So it's always going to be driven in the uh, in the in the way to get people to consume more. As compared to for people to feel satisfied. So if you look at the even the quality that happens in experience after eating gummy worms versus blueberries, I just feel content after eating blueberries. I don't have to eat the whole pint or whatever. I can stop when I'm full and I'm done. Whereas gummy worms, there's this constant urge. You know, oh, there's more. There are more gummy worms. You you should eat those. And so when we focus on that piece as well. It helps us see how unrewarding this, you know, this driven quality of, of experience is. So using those as examples and then anxiety is an easy one. Worrying, you know, when somebody worries and I have them pay attention, you know, what do you get from worrying? They see that there's really no reward in it. It's just something, you know, they they can it, it's, whether it's kept them busy when they didn't have control over something or it's distracted them. Or made, you know, just made them feel like they're doing something. When they realize that worrying is just driving more anxiety, then they start to become disenchanted with that as well.
0: So I want to just give people a little bit of an expectation. You start the book. What I went through, I was in the process of moving, and I was I felt like I was hoarding things. I wanted to get rid of stuff, and so the first thing that triggered was all right. I'm going to start here because when you when you explain it with your mapping out of habit loops. And I know you do this probably somewhat tactfully, we start thinking about anything and everything. Everything goes into the lens of a habit loop. So now I realize that my worry was a habit loop out of nowhere. I used to have superstitions where, all right, death is coming, I'm having a heart, I'm gonna it's just gonna happen. And this, you know, something somebody's telling me something, and I started to pay attention to that and I realized that's really silly. <laughs> I'm really taking that seriously. And I know that you, your patients do that. You wrote about that in your book. And uh, so For me, that was confirmation. Okay, maybe that's a habit loop. Then I look at me trying to keep everything, my belongings, as I'm moving. And I'm like, well, no, 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 no. This is a habit loop. When I was a kid, we moved, and I wanted to take the walls with me. And this carried on into my adult life. So now I had the the enlightenment. And now everything's a habit loop. You go through the honeymoon phase of it. And then the dust settles now. You just gently, as Andy Podicom says with Headspace, gently just, you know, bring the awareness there. Um, So I, I think it's interesting how what I feel, even after a month reading the book, is a gentle awareness to just everyday things. I'm just a little bit more aware of going in rather. And this is what you said with Rich. You said leaning in with what we're going through with COVID. Something that a lot of the I'm jumping around Let's let's bring context. So a lot of my listeners are in physical therapy, patients, students. A big thing that I coach others to do now is lean in, mm-hmm. not just to the pain, but like the emotional state that the person is in. Lean into them being miserable. What has your experience, your research, your clinical practice taught you with leaning into tension and and anxiety and all these things.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So if you think about this from a scientific perspective, our brains are wired when there's something unpleasant to either run away or make it go away, you know? So it's completely normal when there's some unpleasant emotional state for our brain to say, let's do something to make this go away. And typically we reach for whatever we, you know, whatever's nearest to us that makes it go as quickly as possible. That can be the refrigerator. We eat some food. We stress eat. That could be alcohol. We drink alcohol. That could be our phones, our weapons of mass distraction where we distract ourselves. So we do these things to run away from, yet they, you know, whatever that unpleasant emotional state is, yet that doesn't fix it, it doesn't solve the problem, and then can create a problem unto itself, whether it's drinking too much or eating too much or going on social media too much. So here, I, I love this phrase, I don't remember where I learned it, but the it's called, it's basically the only way out is through. And here, this is this leaning in that you're talking about. So the only way to work with something is to actually Uh, turn toward it to face it to lean into it and here we can look at anything that's unpleasant I think of it as we can look at it as a teacher we can you know teachers are trying to teach us things and so when there's something unpleasant instead of running away or distracting ourselves where it's just going to stick around and we haven't learned anything uh, except that we're really addicted to our phones when we lean in we can actually lean in with some curiosity and the curiosity is what helps us be with the unpleasant states like oh this is unpleasant oh what does this feel like in my body oh you know what is this driving me to do and suddenly we it reveals all these things you know all these habits oh i lean to my phone i lean to calling a friend i lean to texting i lean to drinking i lean to eating and then we've learned something and we've also learned Uh, unpleasant emotional states aren't going to make our heads explode, you know. In fact, I had a patient who came into my office who said, Doc, if I don't smoke, my head will explode, (laughs) you know. I didn't know what to say. You really felt that. Yeah. So I said, well, and I was kind of trying to uh, stall for time. So I went to my whiteboard and with him, I said, okay, what does head exploding feel like? And I started, you know, he's like, well, tightness. And so I wrote tightness you know, on the board. And then, and I said, is it getting more intense? So we started drawing a line as these things were getting more intense. He, and he was describing, you know, it was tightness, it was tension, it was burning. It's getting more intense. And then all of a sudden it peaked. And then <laughs> right. he had this aha moment where he, I said, well, w- what was it? And he said, well, I usually smoke at this point. I, you know, cause I just figured that it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Hence the head exploding. But then he said, oh, it, it's actually starting to to dwindle, it's starting to go down now. And he realized he could be with unpleasant emotional states like a craving and his head would not explode and he didn't have to smoke a cigarette. So there is a beautiful example of the only way out is through. Instead of running from that nicotine withdrawal by smoking a cigarette, he could lean into it, learn something about himself and also learn that he didn't have to smoke. He could actually ride out these cravings. So contextually, people
0: have shoulder pain, right? You ever see somebody with shoulder pain, they reset their shoulder all the time. So I recently had a patient and I made the realization after reading your book, it is a habit. Now I know chronic pain and acute pain, a lot of people don't realize the glial system in our brain is heavily involved with pain. I learned that from uh, somebody at the University of Adelaide, Dr. Mark Hutchinson, based off of Dr. Mosley and Dr. Butler's work. Chronic pain is like a different beast. But then I postulated, I think Dr. Brewer just taught me that Chronic pain can be a habit loop. And then specifically, fixing, trying to adjust the shoulder, let's say, is becoming a sensitized habit loop. Yeah. So by then trying to treat that with the foam roll, I guess my example of the cigarette, as silly as this sounds, is the foam roll or the trigger point ball or the stim machine or the heat or the PT. That's sensitizing that pathway. They get temporary relief and they come back. Or the chiropractor, they get the adjustment, they feel better. I need more... I need a better chiropractor. I need a bigger pop. And I I want to go right in, I want to lean into this with you because you're the man. We have sold people in this world in healthcare that we have the magic red button, that we have physical therapists, we have psychiatrists to fix it all. And we've created maybe a pandemic of a habit loop of fixing pain. I saw the study that you mentioned in your in your app on dispositional mindfulness. I can't remember the last name.
1: Uh, Fado Fado Zidane. He does great work. Zidane.
0: And it seemed pretty compelling. There is evidence that people with this increased dispositional mindfulness have decreased perception of pain. So with this specific case study I'm talking about, I just got feedback yesterday. You know, I tried what you said, brought awareness into when I felt that trigger behavior reward. I said, okay, your trigger is when your shoulder blade feels that little knot when you're at your computer and then the behavior is trying to reset. The result is it feels temporarily better, but it's kind of a negative feedback loop because they feel the pain again. Boom, again, they try and fix it. So I said, because I had a ball player when I was with the Cardinals, he dry threw himself out of baseball. He was his first, he was two years in the big leagues. He would like dry throw all the time, just going through the motion. He had a shoulder injury and we are convinced that he changed his mechanics because of the, the anxiety he had from it. So anyway, I tried to apply it. And then clinically, I just heard, you know, I've been just trying to be aware of it and not trying to adjust it. And it feels better now. Yeah. nice. And I'm thinking of the fat. Yeah. The, the trimming this fat in our system, leaning out rehabilitation, the opiate. I mean, talk about opiates. I, I know that there's plenty of evidence on, on this side of mindfulness, but how much are we over fixing in this entire world of healthcare? That shouldn't be, Fix the way it's being
1: fixed. Yeah. I, well, I would say there are two pieces that that I'm seeing. One is that there's, you know, it, it's a reinforcing piece. So, you, for example, just using the chiropractor example that that you give, you know, going for the bigger pop, that's a, you know, it's a good it's a good way to get patients to come back to your office. And so, if there's a, if there's fee for service, we're going to be driven by the fee. And so there there's a systematic habit loop that people get caught in the middle of because they need you know they need to make a living. And so it's not the chiropractor's fault that the system is set up so that if you know I pay you money to make me feel better, right? Right. So that's
0: It's in place for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I would say it's it's not really the fault of individuals. They're just caught in this system and they want to help people, you know. I don't know any chiropractor that doesn't want to help people. And so here if we can train if we can train ourselves and train our systems to approach this more holistically in terms of how can we how can we empower people to take care of their own their own lives their own well-being and then we get reimbursed that way you know by not having them have to come back to our offices then we're less likely to be driven by those habit loops societally and they're more likely to heal because we give them the tools. So, for example, you, you give your patients, you know, the tool to bring awareness and step out of that habit loop. Wouldn't there be a great there'd be a great CPT code for um, satisfaction, for the joy of knowing that our patients are doing better? Wouldn't that be great?
0: (laughs) It would be beautiful. And you know what? Why is not why is mindfulness not a CPT code? Why can't we lobby for that across the board? Whether you're a podiatrist, a chiropractor, a psychiatrist or a physical therapist, we all can utilize mindfulness. Somebody who is my last guest was a cancer survivor. He tells me the number one thing that helped him was community mm. and 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 helping him you know bring awareness to what was good for him it helped him survive Ewing sarcoma I mean why why are we still even debating it sure the politics of it I'm on board I'm a soldier on this so the next thing is with your app because it's really intriguing to me you 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 really intrigue me because you really turned a corner in your field you went against the grain and at the same time, you use digital technology to do it. Maybe it's more mainstream, but I created an app my first year out of PT school called Video App. The idea was to take videos, give it to the patient, and I was trying to get them to leave the clinic because I realized the insurance model was terrible. The therapist looked at me like I was an alien, and they said, where's the database of exercise? I said, no, it's personalized for you, and they didn't get it. Now, of course, they get it a little more. They're still we're still not really adopting telehealth actually the way we really can be that that we definitely are not in my field. At least people don't like it. How did you create this really successful app and integrate these cartoons that are really engaging? Like it seems like it was a mission for a lot of people to be involved, but it seems like you were a really big part behind this whole thing. Walk me through that because my app did not work so successfully.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the basic premise was I had this realization, you know, that my patients, they don't, you know, these habits are set up to help us remember to do a behavior in a certain context. And so it's, we're laying down context dependent memories. People don't learn to smoke in my office. They don't learn to overeat in my office. They don't learn to get anxious in my office, hopefully. Uh, So the, I was already seeing that I'm swimming uphill here. This is an uphill battle to try to help people change their behavior, you know, in my office, maybe seeing me once a month, you know, where it's it's not very often versus, you know, they've got 20 cigarettes that they're facing every day or they're facing every meal or they're facing the bakery every time they go buy it. So I, I said, well, can we actually package this? and deliver it, you know, take evidence-based training and deliver it to people's fingertips. And we started doing this work back in 2012, uh, before, you know, really before um, even the Android looked like a phone, you know, looked kind of like a big Texas instrument calculator back then. So we started asking these questions, you know, can we deliver mindfulness through an app? And of course, You know, as a clinician, I want to be able to empower my patients and say, you know, do this at home where they're in context and they can do it every day and we can cut it into short bite-sized pieces. And as a researcher, I want to research it and make sure it works, which is why we can combine the two. So, for example, we developed this craving to quit app for smoking. We could show that brain mechanisms that, you know, by using the app, it specifically helps people not get caught up in cravings and the decreases in brain activity in, in these brain regions correlates with reductions in smoking. With our Eat Right Now app, we've got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating, testing people's cravings in context, right? It, at home. And with the Unwinding Anxiety app, I mentioned one study, but another study that we more recently completed, we got a 67% reduction in anxiety in people with generalized anxiety disorder. And so here... If you if you remember, you know, I was talking about medications. We have to give five people medication one person benefits. That number needed to treat it. Yeah, that number needed to treat in our unwinding anxiety study, 1.6. We had properly powered it based on what our pilot data and our physician study showed, which suggested we didn't need hundreds and hundreds of people to get the result. So for, probably your listeners know, you know, you can get a You can get a statistically significant result that doesn't actually have a lot of clinical significance, or if you're, if you see a really big uh, results clinically, you don't actually need a huge study to prove that. And so we could actually go with the latter. Our study was about 70 subjects total split evenly between a control group and our active group. And we got gangbuster results. All of these were highly significant. It's amazing. Well, if you're listening
0: bring some awareness next time you're trying to treat pain or your own pain. Just, just what what are you telling doc?
1: You know, I love the simplest way that I explain it is think of a mathematical equation. It's a very simple one. Suffering equals pain times resistance. And you probably know this one, David. So suffering equals pain times resistance. And the key here is that suffering is on the opposite side of the equation as pain and resistance. So the pain might not necessarily change, but our resistance to it can. And as we bring curiosity in, that's inversely related to the resistance. The more curious we are, the less we resist. And the less we resist, the lower our suffering is. You know, and there's this saying, what we resist persists, what we feel heals, right? So we forward if we turn toward it and get curious, oh, what's my resistance toward this pain feel like? The pain can still be there, but we don't suffer nearly as much. So that's what I say.
0: Well, thank you, because my mentor, I have two mentors. One's a psychologist, and the other one is very spiritual, and he's more on the eastern side for me. And he always says, what, what you resist will persist. I put it in my book. And so now I have a researcher telling me that same thing. So now we got to listen. Um, it's irrefutable. And the, the evidence that you have is corroborates so many. smoking. Eating, burnout, let me ask you this, is there one thing you'd say this is where you really apply awareness in your life or is it pretty much across the board?
1: I would say anything that has a habitual component, which is about ninety percent of life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's not to say that habits are bad. Most of our habits help us survive. You know, imagine having to relearn everything every day—from putting yeah. on your clothes to eating to making coffee. That's a habit
0: loop. That's a habit loop. If you if you try and treat that, that was. When I started your book, I went into a habit loop of trying to address everything, which was kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. So you got to be aware of that, too. Yeah. Um, sorry to cut you off, though. That that makes a lot of sense. Um. So some of the in terms of burnout, in terms of if I if somebody was to go into their practice and say, hey, I was listening to a podcast. I read a book on wanting anxiety. I think we have something wrong in our practice, or we didn't learn it in school. How do we start the conversation? How do we finesse this conversation? You said it, the businesses depend right now on it, but how do we start spreading this awareness?
1: I would say we start with our own experience. So the more we start practicing this ourselves, the more we will start exuding it, you know, it's, it's like curiosity and kindness, right? So this world needs a whole lot more curiosity in terms of, you know, people trying to understand other people's perspectives. There's a ton of divisiveness, for example, and we need heaps and heaps of kindness. The world, you know, I've I've seen just constantly people are not nice to each other, whether it's, it's warfare or our neighbors or whatever. And so the more we practice this ourselves, the more curious we are about somebody's perspective, the more kind we are to somebody else, the more we see how great these feel, and the more we're going to d- develop these habit loops of developing and and practicing these more. And then people are going to be walking by us and they're be like, "Man, what are you smoking? I want some," <laughs> of that. you know.
0: Well, I was thinking that reading your book, I'm like, I'm here. The story you told about writing your first book. Really resonated with me because I was not a good writer, but now that I write, I, I, I get dopamine hits from it. I retrain my brain with writing, and I never thought I would. But the story you tell of the sitting and walking mindfulness that you did for yourself, and then all of a sudden you bust out your first book, uh, "The Craving Mind," right? Um, I, I really could relate to that, but at the same time. I want to go into a habit loop of figuring out how do I always get into a flow state. But it's really, it seems to have had quite a remarkable imprint on your own professional life. And I mean, looking at what you've done, it's changed your practice. It sounds like it changes it changed the practice around those that you work with. So I think the culture is changing. I think that we're getting it. Um, but I think our patients are still going to be coming in asking us, hey, treat this but for me what I tell people is like lean into that and reflect it back so you're looking to leave without pain all right well maybe you can bring some curiosity into that and I know for me I had to become a lot more confident talking about this because we're not trained as psychologists we're not trained as behavioral specialists yet that's what we are yeah we when sure. people come in with pain we tr- truly are helping them reach train behaviors um, but I'm just so impressed with your work I I I hope to, to learn more from you directly and share your work to the, to the world of physical therapy as much as possible because I think if we start applying this, we will find that people will feel better, we'll have more longevity in our careers, and who knows what other diseases and comorbidities we might be able to thwart off from just simply bringing awareness into what we're eating if we're smoking how we treat pain, I think that this is it. I, I don't call
1: me silly, but I, I'm sure you potentially do. Well, I, I I keep coming back to one word, which is science. <laughs> you know, it's just, this is how our brains work. And curiosity, you know, curiosity just feels better uh, than these other things. So- Doesn't always I'm, kill the cat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, besides the cat. I think we'll all do better. Uh, with you know, with a little bit of curiosity, and I, you know, I, I love this phrase. I think James Stevens, the Irish poet and author, um, put it this way: he "says Curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will." You know, there's a whole lot of fear whether we're trying to help some, you know, help a patient, or whether we're, we're a patient coming in and we've got fear of our pain. You know, the more we can inject curiosity in, into our lives, the better our lives will be, and the better the world will be. All right, switch the Advil.
0: And the cortisone for some mindfulness and curiosity. The last thing I was, I don't want to spoil the book, but it seems like we might be heading in a good direction based on some of your thoughts on how, we're, how our reward system is trained in terms of human behavior. And maybe, maybe there's more good than that.
1: I, I, our brains are set up that way, fortunately. You know, we're set up more for kindness than meanness. And it's a, It's a matter of waking up to how much better it feels. And so that might take us a little bit of time, uh, as a species, but I I'm optimistic.
0: If you need to be convinced, read the book. Unwinding anxiety, unbelievable piece of work. It's maybe the tip of the iceberg. Because I see Dr. Judd changing the paradigm. I'm a foot soldier. I'm here. I'm I'm here to do whatever I need to do on my end because I'm fed up with this shit. I'm fed up with all of us really beating ourselves into the ground and and burning out too early in our careers, selling people the magic potions when we know that there's more to it. So I think we're heading in a good direction as well. Dr. Judd, thank you so much for graciously giving me your time this morning. And uh, I've learned a ton already. So where can people uh, get the book and, and follow you? I know you have so much, your app. What's the best way for people to get in the door? (laughs)
1: <laughs> the simplest way is just through my website, which is this drjud.com, I'm also on Twitter at Judd Brewer and Instagram at Dr. Period Judd. Um, but my website's the easiest way to find everything.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that after listening to this, you are ready to start applying some awareness and curiosity to all aspects of your lives. A lot of my listeners who are professionals, yourselves as physical therapists, chiropractors, strength coaches, personal trainers, nutritionists, students of healthcare and the sports sciences, I really want you to take this to heart, this idea behind not just trying to fix everybody you work with. Apply some mindfulness to yourself so we can help those who we serve apply that same concept, and ultimately, probably solve exactly what they want to solve. Maybe just not in the way our habit loops have trained us. Check out Dr. Judd's book, Unwinding Anxiety. It's an amazing read. Head over to my Instagram at Dave M. Meyer. That is D-A-V-E-M-M-E-Y-E-R. Let me know what you thought of the episode. And we'll be back next week. Have a great one.